Quiet, Lock please. Conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and they'll provide you with guests and information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. So now let's move behind the scenes at Movie Beat. I'm Rex Sykes. I'm your host, and my guest today is Julie Richardson. She produced the movie Collateral and so many other things. She's uh, uh, been a guest before. She talked about pitching, a fabulous interview on pitching your project in Hollywood, and about V-Pipe, the contest on Facebook, which we've talked about each and every day during the month of April. Uh, that contest is drawing to a close, but it's been extended. We'll let Julie tell you about that in just a few minutes, but first I have some announcements. And I want to thank all of my listeners and readers for tuning in. Uh, the official website is rexsykes.com. That's my name. You can subscribe to the official website by clicking on the RSS feed there right at the welcome page. Movie Beat is really designed to be a resource for you, and that's why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. We pull back the veil, we expose the man behind the curtain, like as in The Wizard of Oz, and we talk with producers and directors and everyone behind the camera, celebrity actors, about what it takes to get your project made, what it takes to advance your career, the nuts and bolts, what to do and what not to do, uh, so that you can work smarter, faster, and, and actually get your projects completed. If you're listening live, go ahead and uh, make us a friend, make us a fan, rate and leave comments right where you are. If you're listening to this archived, it means you're at the interviews page on the RexSykes.com, and you're probably in the archives at your at my guest name, and uh, you know that inside there is a link that says to listen, click here. And, uh, and that's how you do it. So that's for everyone else who isn't there yet. But the good news is, is that you can subscribe to the podcast at uh, iTunes Store, and you can always have all of the interviews uh, updated each and every time one uh, goes into the uh, queue. So subscribe at iTunes and rate and review all the shows, because when you do that, you extend our reach to other listeners, other filmmakers, other actors, other people, other fans who could benefit from the expertise that is shared by my listeners. You're really, I'm sorry, by my, my guests. You're really supporting my guests when you uh, rate and review a show when you retweet about it, when you post it on your Facebook wall or your MySpace, when you share it and let people know about what's upcoming or what's been completed or what's on the website, uh, you're helping my guest and you're helping me and the Rex Sykes Movie Beat Show. I mean, this is a free resource, so uh, we can take all of the help uh, that we can get from you, the listener, and you, the reader. The chat room is open, so if you'd like to join us, join us now, and you may have questions for my guest and uh, I have just a few announcements so I'm going to be making, and then we're going to move into our conversation. Again, the Twitter address is Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT. The last word is abbreviated. And um, I'm going to be in Madison, Wisconsin tonight, the 16th, Friday, from 10, at 10.15, to see Feed the Fish, a movie made in Wisconsin by a Movie Beat guest uh, director, Mike Madstorf. It premieres tonight. It's a world premiere 
at 10.15. So if you're in the listening area and you can be there, we'll meet up at the uh, Feed the Fish premiere. Now, that movie also plays at the Point Cinema on uh, in Madison. Check out uh, Times and, and uh, local listings, but it plays from the 23rd of April on for about a week or so, and uh, at least that's the initial opening run, so check that out as well. That Point Cinema is on Big Sky Drive in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, for other news, uh, please check into the Hot and Fun blog. There's the Art and Craft of the Director Film Workshop with uh, Movie Beat guest director uh, Peter Marshall. There's Kevin Sorbo's charity uh, World Fit for Kids, V-Pipe, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, so check into that. Now, April 22nd, I'm going to be at the Time Cinema in Milwaukee for the world premiere of Long Pigs. It's a grisly, ghastly, very, very sick horror film made by some uh, Vancouver, I'm sorry, Toronto producers, uh, Chris Power and Nathan Hines, who've been a guest here on Movie Beat, uh, but it's going to be at the Time Cinema, 7 p.m. Thursday, April 22nd. The producer, the director, the special effects uh, uh, makeup person and others are coming in, so uh, you can meet us all there at that time, and uh, uh, and we'll all have a, have a nice time at the world premiere. You can go to their website and find out more about that as well. It's longpigsthefilm.com. Uh, without any further ado, I'm going to uh, bring Julie Richardson on and uh, chat about what's happening with Julie and uh, talk about all the things we promised you to talk about. Hi there, Julie. How are you doing today? Rex, good morning. Nice to be back on the show with you. Thank you for having me. It is wonderful to have you back. We have gotten so many great comments about the the uh, pitching advice and information that you provided the last time. I, I'm just thrilled to have you back. You are uh, uh, an incredible resource for the Movie Beat listeners, for myself, and, and for people all around the world. So uh, I thank you for coming back. Oh, well, that's very kind. I, the truth is I had a rocking good time. That was really fun. And, uh, you know, nothing – I think we're all movie lovers here, so there's nothing more fun than dishing about movies, Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And Absolutely. how to survive the industry. Indeed, indeed. And times are changing, and so that's a good thing to know, right? Well, uh, yeah, it's I, not only, I think not only is it a good thing to know, I think it's a good thing. Um, because quite frankly, we've needed a shift for a long time, and those of us, and I anticipate that that's everyone on your end as well, uh, all of us stand at the ready to make those adjustments. And because we are independents, because we are filmmakers that are – um, just not only um, active in making movies, but ca can be nimble and make changes easily. It is an opportunity for us. So that is that makes for some very exciting times in entertainment. Absolutely. Um, so, Julie, could you catch us up a little bit? I know V Pipe is uh, is being extended just a little. By bit the way, Rex, you're the man. If you've been pitching this little Hollywood V Pipe pitch contest. Every day on your show, I cannot thank you enough, friend. I owe you dinner. Like that is so. Uh, we're ex absolutely excited to um, extend the deadline for a couple of days. We had a few requests of I can't get my taxes and my pitch done at the same time, uh -huh. um, which we can completely understand. And you can't, you know, everyone seemed to be waylaid by the tax man. So we had a. Uh, we extended the deadline for four days. We're having some fantastic responses. If you have any questions, make sure you put them up on the page. Once again, that's the Hollywood V-Pipe, V-P-Y-P-E, 
V-Pipe is the application on which we're using to pitch the Hollywood V-Pipe Pitch Contest and who is kind enough to to host this event for us because, you know, clearly um, the pipeline is never free on the Internet, not like this. So we are they are being very generous to host this for us simply to give writers and producers a chance to get their material out there. So And into the hands that can help them get it made. So um, I'm actually more excited about hearing what's going on with you today, but uh, but we can certainly talk a little bit about what's going on with me too. Um, I've got some a little bit of big news. Uh, we have um, gotten a green light on the col- or or a, a flashing green light, meaning it's yellow but turning green on the collector two. Awesome. Oh, that's so exciting! I, it's uh, you know I whoever knew that this little movie would turn into um, what is becoming a franchise, and the, um, Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton have some fabulous ideas for um, uh, exactly what the story is, and it's a little bit of a, um, uh, a di- it's a little divergent from what from kind of the original. I think torture porn is generally out. I know it was never really in in my book, but it seems to be out with audiences, and so we've. Um, migrated a little further away from um, just a, not only just a clever concept, but and, and a, a confined story, but kind of a bigger idea. So we are just super excited about that. We're going to actually have some fabulous. If you're a collector fan out there, and I hope there are a few, because we've been selling out the DVDs everywhere. Awesome. Thank, how exciting is that, right? Very and cool. It, in a day where um, DVD revenues are down, I we certainly just are so really moved by the enthusiasm for the project. But um, uh, we're going to have some really fun merchandise. We're going to have some big um, fat heads, and I don't know if you know what fat heads are, but they're the huge wall stickers uh-huh. um, of the collector, which are just just really fun and. Um, some of it will be promotional stuff. Some of it will be for sale, and we're just—it's not so much about making the money. It's just about getting, you know, you know, servicing all the fans out there and ourselves included, because the truth is we're fans. So, so that's kind of exciting news. Absolutely. And we've got a cu- couple of other big projects. We've got—I'm um, working with Jessica Alba and Robert Rodriguez on a French comic. Um, and that's interesting. It's amazing to kind of watch uh, Robert Rodriguez work. Um, he's not directing; he's producing with us. So you know, he's just—he's such an interesting guy. He's really—he's um, very quiet, very um, uh, reticent to speak. But when he speaks, it's—you know—because it, he takes in all the information before he volunteers anything. And uh, you know, I—I I don't know people like. You may consider yourself like this. I definitely am. I'm much more speak before and try to figure out the information as I go rather than do what he does, which is take in all the information and then start chatting. So he's uh, cool. uh, really, really interesting. Awesome. And his team. So it's all good. You know, life in Hollywood moving ahead, right? You know, you bet. Fantastic. Well, Julie, let me ask you this. I mean, let me let me segue right in and and say that, um, you know, and I think we discussed this a little bit, um, but we talked about being a creative producer, or, or we were going to talk about what it means to be a creative a creative producer. Uh, I know we talked a, a bit about the, the 
you know, what it means to be on the creative ex executive side rather than on the production side. So a creative producer, we'll talk a little bit about the process of development and, and then get into some storytelling, uh, uh, the ideas of storytelling or script issues and stuff like that. Can your listeners ask questions as well? And is there a messaging? They can. They can. They can ask questions in the chat room. Yes, absolutely. I always encourage listeners also to uh, email their questions in by using the contact page at the website so that they can do so in advance. By the way, we're going to say that Julie is going to come back at another time, correct? Yes. In early June, and and so we'll continue. So if you have questions for Julie today, do use the chat room. Otherwise, uh, e email some in uh, using the contact page, and you just put Julie's name in the header and the uh, questions in the body. And, uh, and send them off. Then when Julie returns, we can ask those questions. Uh, if we don't get any, I'll just have to ask my question. So I, I leave it up to you, the listeners and the readers of the blog. Fabulous. So you know what's funny about producing? It is it almost defines itself as you go. There are, you know, producing is like such a broad umbrella of activities. And, you know, so many times it is just finding what's going to move your project along, um, uh, you know, one brush stroke at a, at a time, much the same way you move your script along one brush stroke at a time and your character along one brush stroke at a time. It's the same thing in producing. And, you know, it's uh, it, it has, for me, certainly I evolved into a creative producer. I didn't really know what a creative producer was when I set out. I just knew that... I, I was my, one of my skill sets was I saw opportunities and when I and then I knew how to put elements together within those opportunities and truthfully that was my only natural skill. Everything else, you know, I've kind of learned on the fly. Um, and early on, um, especially like just when I was just looking for projects for Edge City, which was the deal under which Collateral was made. Mm -hmm. um, I was out there reading all the bad scripts in the agencies because it was a cable movie. It was a, a collateral, I believe. We we may have discussed this last time. It was supposed to be like a $5 million H, uh, movie for HBO. And HBO actually passed on the script that we eventually end up selling to DreamWorks. Um, so we, just because you get a no out there, never take that as a negative reaction. It's all about just kind of honing in for exactly where your project's supposed to be. It either means it's not the right time, it's not the right elements, but I I never believe that no's really not a good answer. Um but uh you know it's so funny like uh producing really kind of defined itself and what happens is I found I started finding material and the material I was finding was all a very clever idea, but the ideas were underdeveloped. And so I ended up spending years in development. Those of you out there, and I assume it's um, the majority of you, know what I'm talking about when it comes to developing projects. It takes an eternity. It is a glacial process. And um, especially as I was had a huge learning curve on, because everything I learned kind of about scripts wasn't in film school. It's what I understood about storytelling from literature and from some of the classes that I'd taken at, um, at UCLA and AFI just in analysis and structure. So, But it wasn't like I had a formal film, film school education. So the truth, is, the truth is I had no idea what I was doing. 
And so learning this process was certainly, I developed into a creative producer as I was developing these projects, which needed significant um, development uh, along the way. You know, here's actually kind of a funny story. Right after I um, sold Collateral to DreamWorks, so what happened just to um, uh, give you the, the brief on that, we... And I believe it was 99, at 1999, which seems like yesterday, actually. HBO passed on the draft of Collateral that we had submitted. Um, we took it back, and then we um, took a, uh, submitted it to various um, entities around, uh, you know, in Hollywood, different um, producing uh, production companies, different producers that had deals. Which is back back then that which is exactly what you would do, and uh, everyone passed on it. And then suddenly I get a call at six o'clock one afternoon from DreamWorks. I hadn't even submitted it to DreamWorks; we're exclusively out to someone else. And um, I get a call from Mark Hames, who said, "I just did a favor for a friend of mine, who was my roommate, who lived down the hall from me when I was at USC." Um, and I met with one of his clients named Stuart Beatty, and he told me about this script. I want to read it tonight. So I sent it over to Stuart. I mean, I sent it over to Mark Hames, the illustrious and talented Mark Hames. Uh, Mark read it that night. The next day, he pitched it to Walter and Lori and Katzenberg at their meeting. They read it that night, and the next day, they bought the project. And you just, like, never know how – you just never know how it goes. Um, but right after that, I thought, great, I've got an in a DreamWorks. Let's set something else up. And I had this fabulous French comic called 13 that was, um, you know, kind of a guy washes up on a, uh, on a shore in Maine. He's rescued by this old couple, and he has no memory. He's just got the track of a bullet that grazed the side of his head and a tattoo of, the, of a Roman numeral 13. It was just wonderful, wonderful comic, and so we, um, I, uh, I took it in and pitched it to Mark, who was my executive, who had bought Collateral, and I'm here to tell you it was just uh, because I did not know how to take that story and condense it into what was an effective um, pitch and an effective story for the studio, we could never figure out how to set it up. And so finally I like went to writer after writer after writer, we came up with some ideas, and um, uh, and then unfortunately, as you notice, it's very similar to um, uh, uh, to the Bourne, the Bourne franchise. They actually were released about the same time. So once, um, uh, what's his name, the director of uh, the Bourne franchise, once he signed on, um, we uh, and Matt and got Matt, Matt Damon. You know, it kind of took our project out of the running. But it was actually kind of an interesting thing because what I realized was you can't just take a story in and or you can't take a concept in or a property in unless you know what the story. Is going to be, and so it required me to go back through these like eighteen volumes of the comic and figure out what the franchise was. And because I didn't have money in development, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this, um, I was forced to do it on my own. 
Um, so, you know, with the help of Chris Lockhart, who who did know what he was doing, thank goodness, um, you know, we and my uh, producing partners on the project, we really kind of dug in there, and it became, you know, somewhat of an education. So, you know, I hear a lot of people refer to or ask the question, what is a creative producer? And like Mark Johnson, who's a wonderful, wonderful, I, you know, it's, I wouldn't have normally considered him a creative producer, although he considers himself that because he's so good at the logistics of it. He knows, you know, he started out as an AD, and for those of you who don't know who Mark Johnson is, he um, produced di- everything from Diner up to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and uh, and he is just, you know, someone I want to be like when I grow up. Him and Gail Ann Hurd, you know, producers that that can do all aspects of the job. I am much more on the creative packaging side, meaning I find ideas. Most of them, I'll tell you, though, are um, generated within our company or I'll, I'll, or ideas that we identify and then because we learn to develop them ourselves, um, we develop them and then take them out. Like I've got a Wall Street Journal article that I optioned that I attached a writer to, but I kind of knew what the story was and then just brought in another attachment and you know, go. I go out and try to find people for these projects of ours. Um, so it's really great fun to me. Like that's the you know, I, those of you who are, I guess, true filmmakers out there who love you know being on the set, set shooting. You know, my hats off to you. I think production is so hard. I started out as a PA hauling trash cans and um, working and doing craft service and you know, cleaning up, you know, dog mess on the set, you know, just because somebody had to do it, so it was always the PAs. So, um, you know, and long 18-hour days, first person on the set, last person to leave. I think production is very difficult. It can be exciting at times to see it come together, but I, I really love the development and the packaging side. So, Developing a project, putting together the elements, structuring the financing, and then handing it off to people who really know how to execute that. Um, now, the producers I look up to, like Gail Hurd or Mark Johnson, they are all around talented folks. They can they deliver it on every uh, on every front, and you know, and clearly, you know, it becomes a creative partnership between them and the filmmaker. Um, in this day and age, it's more and more difficult. So many directors take a produce, not only take a producer credit, but kind of take an active role in helping to produce the film. So they're very selective of once you bring a filmmaker on as a creative producer, that the nat- depending on what your relationship with the director is, that um, uh, that role of yours may change. Well, let me ask you this, because we do have a question that, that, that kind of addresses uh, just what you're speaking of uh, from, the, from the chat room. The question is, Collateral is my favorite Michael Mann film. And I was wondering how Michael Mann came to the project and what it's like working with directors. Can you talk about the director-producer relationship and any problems producers may encounter? Oh, well, Ken, let's <laughs> – what a question. <laughs> well, well, first of all, I think – we were so lucky to get Michael on that project. I will tell you how that came about, actually. It's n- not how you would expect. Um, we act- The first director we went out to on Collateral, 
Um, we took it to we sold it to DreamWorks. We did a draft. Frank Darabont wrote a draft, and then we went out to directors. Um, we had gone out to we'd put together our director list, had gone out, and then we get a call from Steven Spielberg that says, and Steven says, you know, I've given this project to Mimi Leader because she had a three picture deal with us, and I'd like this to be the third picture, uh, uh, the third picture to complete her deal, and. Um, we had and Jude Law was interested in the project at that time, and um, so we were kind of circling around that, but we couldn't come to terms w- with the numbers on that picture for Mimi, and so Mimi dropped off the project. And then um, who else had like Joel Schumacher and Ben Stiller as a pair on that project for a while? Um, I had Janusz. Then we get another call from Steven who says, "You know, I want Janusz to direct this now." Janusz Kaminski is Steven's cinematographer um, and a uh, just a, a visual genius. Um, but um, And Walter and Lori said, fantastic, but it needs to be at this budget level, and we couldn't come to terms with them on budget level. And then, some, then we land Russell Crowe to star in the movie. So everything kind of stood still when we got, when we got Russell, because Russell um, had the, the approval of a of director he wanted to shoot it in london he and michael had chatted about it but when you have one of the at the time one of the top three movie stars in the world you always go with a movie star and so we rotated through i bet i don't know how many different directors we had sent it out to who were interested in talking to russell about about it and none of them he approved so we um we knew that the option with DreamWorks was was ending. We said, look, if we're not going to make it here, let's make it somewhere else. And they said, well, we need to get Russell to, to do something. So we went back to Michael Mann and said, Michael, you, we think you'd be a great director for this. Um, if you can work it out with Russell, fantastic. If not, then um, maybe there's some other options. And Michael and Russell met. They had different visions of the project. Russell Crowe dropped off the project. And uh, and then Michael like went out for Hail Mary and never stopped running. He like immediately went into pre-production. He was on a plane uh, meeting with Adam Sandler like the next week, but Adam's father had just died, so he wasn't in a place where he wanted to do a movie. So it's just interesting the way, yeah, the odd way it came together. Michael was a very very late. I mean, he literally. We put him on the movie, and he went into pre-production. That is that is amazing. That uh, isn't that wild. It is amazing, and it's also interesting to hear, you know, how people come and how people go, and and what kind of elements, you know, make or break a deal, you know, between people, and and you know, a star having, dir- you know, a director choice or something like that, and how, you know, I, I just think for the listeners, it's it's who who may or may not know how that process, um, and it's and it may always be different, but how that that the process of films come about or how the deals are made and, 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 and finally people, you know, are locked in. Uh, you know, to me, it's always fascinating. It's, it's always worth hearing about. Yeah. And you know what? The, all the stories are different. It's like every movie has a story and um, it's funny. I, you know, I've got uh, one script that, Oh, here's kind of a funny producer, creative producer story. I went over, um, I was having a meeting at flower films which is Drew Barrymore's company, um, and they said, you know, we're looking for another movie for Drew and Adam. This is right after the Wedding Singer, and I was like, 
huh. They said, and and that's interesting. And they said, well, and what do you have? I said, you know, I don't know, but let me check. So I go back to my office. I pull every script on, off like my shelf as I am just, you know, anything that was a romantic comedy that we had at the time, I was I was busting my way through. And um, uh, my partner had told me, Nathan Holtz at the time, had told me about this one project that had been a Nichols finalist um, one year. And it was a very clever premise. And I read it and I thought, oh, my God, this is the one. And so I start looking for the writer who, by the way, this is, I don't know what year this is, probably 2001, 2002, um, uh, who was writing under a pen name and I couldn't find him. Like he wasn't a member of the Writers Guild, he wasn't a member of the Academy, the Nichols people had an old address for him. So I start doing searches for him, and it wasn't the internet searching wasn't quite as extensive as it is now. I didn't have a social security number on him, so I can't. I'm absolutely certain that this is the picture for Drew and Adam. So, um, so I because I can't find the writer, I hire a detective. I'm like, surely a detective is going to be able to find this guy. And um, the detective spends a couple of weeks trying to track him down, and comes back to me and says, I have no idea where this guy is. These are the only John Robert Marlowe's I could come up with. Um, he, uh, uh, but, but I'm at my wit's end. So then I go and I hire a second detective to try to find this guy because I'm certain, like, this is a movie that needs to get made. So eventually what happened was like two weeks later, I, I just keep hounding the Academy thinking that if he uh, had submitted for one Nichols, there's a pretty good chance that he would submit for another. And it was right before the announcements came out. And I talked to, I can't remember whether it was Andrew or who it was over at the Academy. And they said, you know, give me a minute and let me check. And he went to his files. It came back to the phone and said, you're not going to believe this. Um, we have a John Robert Marlowe who wrote a script called um, Nano, and he happens to be in our top whatever finalist. Was, I think it was the top 100, the top 100 for this year. And it was like, oh, like nobody could find this guy. And uh, I managed to score it back through the Academy. But you, wow. you, isn't that funny? I told. John, he's going to be telling that story at Writer's Salon somewhere. Wow. Hey, Julie, you know, we're at the halfway point. That is, that is awesome. Let me uh, take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to Ms. Julie Richardson, producer, uh, and we're talking on Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is rexsykes.com. If you're listening archived, remember that there are hundreds of other fantastic interviews. If you're listening live or at the podcast, please go ahead and rate and review the shows. Uh, Reed Martin is coming up next. He's the author of a fabulous book called The Real Truth. Jenny Stolte is a cinematographer. Alan Gansberg is a film historian, author, producer, uh, and works at Columbia Film School. Kristen Shaw is an acting and audition coach she'll be following. Patrick Girardi is coming back to talk more about post-production, sound supervision, and, and re-recording mixing. Uh, Terry Green, director of No God, No Masters. He's a, no Master. He's a screenwriter and director, will return. Eric Morris, acting coach. 
and author will uh, round out uh, April. Uh, Paul Provenza is a stand-up comedian. That may be how you best know him, or from uh, starring in a couple of different television series. He's a producer, he's a director, he's an actor. He will be coming up in May, early May, first week of May. John uh, John Rice, uh, director, author of Think Outside the Box Office. You're familiar with that book on hybrid methods of distribution. And Mitch Apley, or Apley, uh, executive producer, editor, and director, will be coming uh, to visit us also in May. And that's as far as we'll take it today, because I want to get back to Julie Richardson. Um, Julie, uh, you know, uh, as I said, you know, when you start a, a topic, uh, we could probably do 10 shows on each topic, um, you know, so uh, maybe we'll have to do that. But, uh, you know, we prom- I promised the listeners today a little bit about uh, in, in the early in the early. Um, uh, introduction and as well by tweets and, and Facebook and things like that, uh, that we're going to talk about uh, storytelling and uh, some of the strip, script issues that uh, that you encounter, but also uh, how to get your movies made or different ways to get your movies made and distributed. Uh, if we don't get to all of it today, we will get to it in the future show coming up in June and, and then and however however uh, the interviews progress. But uh, uh, well, so let's. Uh, how would you like to proceed? Well, are there any questions that are floating out there? And did I finish answering the one that we were working on? Um, the, which is, which is. Well, what is I, I think the, I think the final part of the last question was, can you talk about the director-producer relationship? Any problems producers may encounter? Um, I know that that within the story, you you know you you um, illuminated us to some of those some of those situations. I, 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 if you feel like you have more of an answer to that question, then. You know, I have a little, actually there is a little to add to that. You know, the truth is my job is just to do whatever I can to best get the movie made. And that's not service, that's not about servicing my objectives, it's about servicing the project, servicing the project. So the project is the objective. So it's never about my ego, it's never um, about which, you know, I think so many times egos just become such a problem uh, in life, not only in entertainment, certainly, but in life. And um, clearly it's because people are scared or feel, um, uh, you know, marginalized or, um, or, or, you know, it's usually, the truth is they're usually fear-based. But, um, you know, as a producer, the you really have to completely put your ego aside and say, what's the best thing for my project? And working with Michael Mann, the truth is, Michael doesn't need me to tell him how to make a movie. The man has made has done a fabulous job making films without my help for all these years. So basically, each job and each film, you know, what you're doing as a producer kind of defines itself. So it becomes a little different on every job depending on the needs of the project and of the filmmaker. Um, For instance, uh, you know, with Michael, he um, didn't want the studio really involved in collateral, so they weren't on set. No one from the production department at DreamWorks. He had, Michael had his team. Uh, He said, I know how to do this. Uh, Thank you, but I don't need your services. And um, and so what? And he certainly didn't need my opinion. But what I was able to do is just be an absolute, be his biggest cheerleader. Literally, my job on that movie was just saying, "Go, Michael, go! You're doing a fabulous job." And that was kind of the extent of it. You know, on set, just telling him how fabulous things were working, 
even though even if it was stressful or whatever was going on for him, just being his biggest cheerleader. And uh, and for that particular project, like that was enough because what I didn't want to do is inhibit the process by getting underfoot, but try to be helpful in whatever way I could be helpful. Um, on the collector, Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton are fantastic. You know, they're a fantastic team, and there were two other producers on that project: Brett Forbes and Patrick Rosati. And then there was a line producer that um, just had made probably a hundred movies. Um, so you know, he knew making low-budget films like the back of his hand. And so my job on that film was I wasn't on the set all the time. I was only there really um, a fraction of the time, um, was moving it, developing the project, moving it forward. Um, Marcus directed it, and he did a really good job of creating that team around him that gave him the support that he needed. And he is truly like the biggest enthusiast. I don't know if you guys have ever watched an interview with Marcus Dunstan, but he is... He is truly the most enthusiastic person I've ever met and genuinely happy. I mean, it's not a front. This guy is genuinely that happy and enthusiastic about everything, takes nothing personal, rolls with the punches, makes the best of any situation. I mean, he's literally so well-adjusted, it's inspiring. And um, so, so much of my job on that was um, just it came after production, so um, when the Weinsteins came to us and said, we can't release this movie, and we said, can we buy it back? Because I um, you know, so I have uh, longstanding relationships um, in entertainment. I, it was my job to find another distributor. So, so within a week, we had um, every one of the major studios, their acquisitions department, in our editing room watching that movie. And I'm here to tell you, that is, they don't like to leave the lot. So, and they don't like to, you know, you never, you generally never want to show your movie on, you know, on the Avid. But unfortunately, that's that's what we ended up doing. And it was stopping and starting, like, the worst part, that's like, you know, the rule number one is never show your movie unless it's in the best light. But we were kind of stuck. Uh-huh. And... um so it was getting those distributors. So my job became all about distribution and releasing the film. And then once we had an equity group who said, we want to release the movie, Mickey Lydell, who I just adore and worship at this point, he's just my hero when it comes to releasing films independently, um, uh, came in, bought the movie. It took every one of us, Mickey's team, the uh, publicity people that he hired, my two producing partners that were very big and trying to get the music together, you know, pushing the social networking. But it was all hands on deck to release that film because we didn't have the um, studio machinery behind us. So suddenly it was us. Like, for instance, the day The Collector was released, something happened on movie phone on the West Coast and none of the oh, the films that were opening were up. Oh wow. wow! Yeah. So it was, and I happened to know the the gentleman who owns Movie Phone, his wife. I was about to go over and knock on her door and say, "We need to take care of this right now." But it was, you know, constantly working with the PR people and the marketing team and um, and our uh, and Freestyle who released the film 
to uh, to make sure that we had booked the theaters. And literally, we they closed the deal in early June, or we set the release date. It was early June. We set the release date for July 31st. So we had eight weeks to get the movie out. Wow. And I'm here to tell you, it was nuts. It was absolutely crazy. But but fantastic fun. I mean, putting all hands on deck means everybody was working around the clock to make sure um, uh, the marketing was done, the social networking was done. I had four interns driving, you know, blogging for us um, just to kind of get the word out about the collector. Because well, that, you, go ahead. I was gonna say, if that, if that's you know amazing. I mean, and and the amount of effort and 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 things that you need to do in order to, uh, you know, keep your project in the forefront. I mean, thanks, you know, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just... No, that's right. I, but I think we all know because I think your listening audience and certainly my friends who are producers and um, and we're all becoming more and more independent these days uh, are looking for better ways to, and even the studios are, truthfully, really spread the word for um, uh you know, for how do we increase the awareness um, of film? And, you know, kind of along the lines of what you were mentioning earlier, Rex, about how do we take our movies out? How do we recoup our investors' money without going through the studios? Generally, you do not recoup your investors' money through the studios because they just give you such a crummy deal. And I say that, and my husband is the head of acquisitions for Fox, you know. I just, uh-huh. they, you don't get your money back that way. However, or, or unless you have some real leverage, um, however, there are other ways. Like if um, uh, just to um, – I'm going to plug a guy who I just had speak for me the other night at a, a group named Peter Broderick. Um, oh, he's going to be on our show. Oh, he's fabulous. Yes. Um, so um, if you uh, want to check out his website, it's peterbroderick.com. But Peter really – um, created a niche for himself about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. He started looking at how to release films outside um, the studio system. Really, how can we make money um, on our movies? And he has got some fantastic examples of, you know, uh, where, where, where to secure those revenue streams, how to start um, uh uh, how to start creating awareness for your project, how to engage your audience, um, and uh, those all those things, which, by the way, even as a filmmaker who has made studio pictures, don't think I don't apply that stuff to everything I do as well. You know, and I was going to ask that, and, and, and before I do, or I was going to comment on that, um, Peter will be a guest toward the end of May. I think it's the 26th or 28th of May, as I recall. We have I've had him on the calendar for quite some time now, and uh, and uh, the show is, is is literally quite booked up. But he's going to, he's going to at least start uh, at that time. So we're looking forward to it. He's really the man who who coined the phrase hybrid uh, distribution, as I understand it. Um, yeah, that's right. But Julie, and- I was going to. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, your turn. You're 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 who they want to hear from. They hear from me in the announcements. <laughs> um well, I was just uh, speaking more about about Peter and what he's been able to do. The um 
you know, he mentioned, we all know that um, uh, the traditional model is shifting. The studios are producing less pictures. Um, the independents that are producing films are doing it in a higher budget range. So it's like Mark Gill and Summit and even Avi Lerner. Avi, who, you know, is in some ways, you know, just the guy who's managed to make money before he ever rolls camera, God bless him. Um, he's not about quality. He's all about quantity. And someone said, you know, imagine the stuff Avi would do if um, if he actually read the scripts. Um <laughs> Which is true, but the uh, man is in, he's my part, my business partner, John Karras's hero, because the, he makes money on every movie. But he does wow. it kind of the old model of, you know, big name talent, give them a paycheck, but um, do it all, you know, via foreign sales. Well, for those of us um, on this um show i don't know that that's the best model what we're doing i know i've got a little independent um comedy with the folks who did starter for 10 and participated in greek wedding and did a wedding date um we're producing a film together and they work very heavily on that foreign sale model too but the banking costs on those are just like you know on a 12 million dollar picture you could have four million dollar dollars in banking costs and that's insane Right, that's right. that that's not good business. So for those of us, one of the things that that are hoping to do business a different way and make sure everyone makes their money back, which is certainly our goal and our responsibility to try to make sure those investors are uh, recoup, um, that DVD revenue stream is still very important. Um, and it's nice to know that. Um, you can. I'm going to also plug one other person, Susan Jackson at Freestyle. If you've got a film that you're trying to get um, a cable deal on, she's got a really good Showtime deal. Her name is Susan Jackson at Freestyle, and uh, she is one of the big. Um, she is kind of the independent um, release distribution house. So they book studios, they book the collector for us, put it on. 1,300 and some odd screens. Um, they've all, they do everything from two screens to, you know, extremely wide releases. But Susan's uh, very filmmaker friendly. She also um, has a deal with Showtime, so she can bundle films and get better deals at Showtime on VOD. I think they've got an iTunes deal as well. So. Um, that you know, if that's of help to any of your listeners, um, let me just say those are people you may want to contact if you have a finished film, you're not quite sure what to do with it yet. I don't know that they'll pre-sale, pre-sell it. In other words, give you money to make the film um, while you're in motion. But Susan really knows what she's doing, and she knows how to make those deals, and um, and she's very, very easy to work with. So. Uh, well, that's I highly, fantastic. Go ahead. I highly recommend her as well. I was going to say that's fantastic, and for giving that away, everybody should rush right out now and buy a copy of The Collector. <laughs> yeah, they should they should do something to return the kindness and the generosity that you that you display here on the show. I do I so appreciate that, um, and uh, you know you know if we can find a way to to return that, 
I, I certainly think we all should. Oh, uh, friend, we're all in this together, truthfully. Well, that's very cool. I, I was going to ask you, we've got literally about 10 minutes remaining, so the time is just flying by. And um, and again, if if we don't cover everything that we promised that we would cover and, and, and we're scratching the surface on so many important topics, that uh, Julie will be back uh, probably early June, and we'll let you know uh, when that occurs. Um, just a quick question from the from the chat room. I want to make sure that we uh, answer that one, and that is, do you have a, a certain genre that you're particularly passionate about? Oh, I do, actually. All right, so this is just a moment where I get to share my passion. All right, so my favorite movie, generally that question comes up, but the truth is I really do have a favorite movie. I have a lot of movies that I love, but my favorite movie is um, The Name of the Rose. It's oh, an wow. Oh. Have you ever seen it? I have, and, and my sister actually gave me the book prior to the movie coming out, so I, you know, I am familiar with it, absolutely. It is, and as Rex mentioned, it is an adaptation of an Umberto Eco novel um, written in the vernacular Italian, or translated from the vernacular, vernacular Italian. It, it is entitled the same, The Name of the Rose. And it is a fabulous, fabulous thriller that is set in this medieval monastery um, uh, uh, that uh, in kind of unfolding this, it's a Jean-Jacques Noe film, um, and the unfolding of this murder mystery there in uh, as the I believe it was the Dominicans, whether the Franciscans and the Benedictine monks, monks, and their kind of war over the power of knowledge, and that that knowledge actually kills, and it is. So well done. I just did a little kind of side note. I actually taught high school my first couple of years out of college, and I taught world history and psychology. And the um, the production designer did such a fantastic job on that film that it is as close. He would not let his crews use anything other than tools that were actually available at the time in order wow. to make it as authentic as possible. So it is truly like one of the best examples of medieval life. So I would always show it to my students. Now it was rated R. It's amazing I didn't get fired for doing that and a number of other things. But um, uh, it w- it is just, you know, it is such a poignant, poignant film. And I've seen it so many times from having shown it to my classes that I can tell you every sentence in that script is tightly woven and pushes the story along. And um, I actually was able, LACMA did a, a retrospective a few years back um, of Dante Ferretti, who is the production designer, and uh, and they showed it on the big screen. And it was one of the most exciting moments of my life. I really had never um, seen that uh, at that level, and it was so moving. So that's it. So I love thrillers. I will tell you just... For future reference, let me tell you guys what I'm working on so that maybe we could do business together. I've got a company called Genre Film Partners, and we are looking, and don't send me any scripts or queries yet because I'm not finished raising the money, but we're 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 down the road on that. We are raising um, a good chunk of change to make t- um, 10 to 20 genre films thrillers horror and comedy i love thrillers thrillers are probably my favorite they're what i write best they're what i develop best i even develop my comedies i structure them like like thrillers because thrillers are so 
um, I think they so effectively utilize dramatic tension, um, which is, by the way, the thing that's missing in most scripts that I read. Um, so that's my favorite. So um, come, you know, late summer, hopefully when I'm off to make Collector 2, because we're hoping to go in production on that, or pre-production in August, um, we'll be starting to look for other projects, other, you know, of these low-budget genre movies that, um, like, uh, that appeal to that um, ever-important 13 to 29-year-old demographic. And I'm not making art, but I am trying to make good movies. Uh, understood. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for that. And we got a big thank you uh, in the chat room for that as well. So, uh, Julie, um, we have uh, about five minutes remaining. And you were, and so, uh, again, we're just probably going to be able to get into this by the time we have to uh, say goodbye for the day. But uh, in, in, you said uh, dramatic tension was the element most missing in, in screenplays. Would you like to or care to elaborate on that? Yeah, boy, that's like a whole, that's a whole chat in and of itself, isn't of it? Right, um, right. Uh, yeah, I think that's actually right. When you know, there's so many ideas. Which, is, by the way, this is what I learned when I, you know, started out producing and didn't know anything. I'd find all these fabulous concepts, but they'd fall apart at the end of the first act. Like, I don't know if any of you writers out there have written and you think, well, I know exactly what the first act is. What happens in the second act? Well, that's the, that's a problem. And the reason that's a problem is because generally. The dramatic tension, the conflict in the story, and it is conflict that drives a story, um, isn't apparent in the concept. Let me give you an example. Like one of the best, not not a this is not a ten on the movie scale. It was very fun. It was amusing, but it was not a ten. However, the concept was. And um, and that is how to lose a guy in ten days. If you'll remember, it's the Matt McConaughey, um, who's Goldie Hawn's daughter, Kate Hudson, Hudson. film that uh, came out a couple of years back. And uh, they had Paramount had two scripts. They had this one script about this magazine um, journalist who was writing an article about how to lose a guy in ten days. And they had this other script. Robert Evans had it, I believe who, um, and it was, uh, and the guy's quest was, how do I make a woman fall in love with me in X amount of time? And what they realized was, you know, I don't know what, I'm sure it was like a story analyst or a CE, somebody who got absolutely no credit for this, read these two scripts and said, that is insane, we need to put these together. These are one story, not two. And it was genius what they did. So uh, suddenly you have a magazine editor who is um, uh, whose whose whole quest is riding on. She has to her article, this big um, kind of thing that she's doing for the magazine, is how do I have a guy um, adore me and then break up with me within ten days? And they, you have Matt McConaughey's character, who um, was whose object was to um, he had ten days to make a girl fall in love with him and keep her because he could never keep the girl. And so, um, so we end up with these two people together that have absolutely um, uh, uh, have objectives that are absolutely at odds 
with each other and cannot be achieved. And so it is that conflict of these two people with these absolutely uh, with these differing objectives that drives that story. Let me ask you now, we literally have two minutes, and, and I love that, and I know we're going to have to come back and we're going to have to follow up on this as, as well as uh, a more uh, topics, but, but let me tie this back to our conversation uh, about pitching. Is it important in the pitch to uh, mention what you just talked about, in other words, the setup and the conflict you know, and the resolution, or do you leave... What do, you, what do you include? What do you leave out so that it becomes a more compelling pitch? I think you absolutely have to com- – uh, you want to get the concepts very clearly, and then you want to know what the stakes are. And the stakes are always about that conflict, right? Like what it, – because it's what's preventing you from achieving your objective. So I think it's really important to kind of put that in the pitch. So um, if I oh, – go ahead, go ahead. No, so um, uh, whatever that is, just make sure you point that out um, so that they'll – People will know that there is a narrative engine, that there is something in there that's going to drive the story. For example, if I went to Romeo and Juliet and I said, hey, these are kind of like, I've got a story about star-crossed lovers. They're, they're young and, and their families, you know, and, and, they, and they, they can't keep apart. Uh, but the major major conflict is uh, the, their parents won't let them get together. And, uh, you know, everything is torn and set, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, is that ideally how to pitch, or should, or, or, and then, and then say, you know, the parents prevent them from getting together, but they find a way anyway, uh, and tragedy, you know, and it ends in some form of tragedy. How do, how do I make it compelling so that, so that? Uh, you know what? I would make it poetic because that really that is a poetic story, and you would say these, um, these two star-crossed, uh, star-crossed kids destined for love. Find, or they find true love that is absolutely forbidden, and the consequences are X. And would you believe? I don't remember exactly what the consequences between the families were, other than that they um, they refused to let that happen. But that they chose that they choose to. All right, here's two different ways of pitching. One is some people don't want to hear the ending, um, uh, so there's always that. Um, but if you want to do the more poetic version, like the logline version, you would say that they would rather choose death than choose life without um, life apart. Oh like, wow! Okay. Yes. And so you really—it's when you're pitching, crafting those words, make it terse, use very effective verbs, verbs that are appropriate, and really get the message. That's when being a wordsmith really counts. And don't think that when I'm pitching my projects, I don't sit down and do a pitch sheet and work out exactly how to pitch it. That is fantastic. I actually have about 30 seconds, Julie. i got to say thank you so much. I'll talk to you in just a few minutes, but thank you so much. Have a fabulous weekend. Best of everything on all of your projects. I mean, it is thrilling not only to speak to you, but to hear from you about how things have gone in the past and how they're going presently and into the future so thank you so much for sharing with our listeners and me today on movie beat and again this is archived so you know and a podcast so it's there for everyone to hear in the future thank you rex it's always a pleasure thank you enjoy well there you have it that is Julie Richardson. Oh, I really appreciate everything she shared and contributed today. Uh, please help by retweeting about 
this particular interview and every one of my interviews and put it on your Facebook wall or your MySpace wall or email your friends and your industry connections because when somebody shares as Julie has and as my other guests do, they're giving of themselves. They're giving their expertise to you so that you can benefit from it and in return do something to return that generosity. All right, everybody, have a fabulous day. Keep in mind that I've got other great guests coming up in the near future. Until we meet the next time, make your movies, complete your projects. That is a wrap.